This is Sound Heights Records Podcast, Session 17, and the song lyric of the day is by Dorothy Fields. Grab your coat and get your hat. Leave your worries on the doorstep. Just direct your feet to the sunny side of the street. Can't you hear a pitter-pat and that happy tune is your step? Life can be so sweet on the sunny side of the street. I used to walk in the shade with those blues on parade, but now I'm not afraid. This rover don't cross over. If I never had a cent, I'd be rich as Rockefeller. Gold dust at my feet on the sunny side of the street. Understand, I'll be looking for you throughout the show. Welcome to the Sound Heights Records Podcast. Harmonizing life and music, growing as an artist, improving as a person, gaining insight and inspiration, conversations with world class musicians. Welcome to Sound Heights Records. This is Yisrael Aryeh. Well, I first met Eddie Landsberg through the pages of his book, Hammond Organ Bass Lines Demystified. I checked out a number of resources for the Hammond organ in my ongoing quest to improve my skills on the instrument. For those who are less familiar, the Hammond organ is a, one of the early electric keyboards that has remained popular decades after they've stopped making them. It was originally made to simulate pipe organs to make a less expensive and more portable version, but it eventually became one of the favorite keyboards of jazz and soul and rock and roll players. So very often, especially in the classic rock context, it's used just as a keyboard with, a, let's say, a bass player playing along. Um, but classically, and many players that specialize in Hammond organ also cover the bass lines using the bass pedals, a combination of bass pedals in their left hand. And it's something that has taken me a number of years to kind of start to figure out how it might work. And I was, um, I bought Eddie's book, um, Hammond Organ Bass Lines, to kind of help further crack that that code and get more comfortable as I'm working on uh, playing the Hammond as a bass player. And I really, the book really resonated with me. Um, it's a very casual style, very down to earth. It's really a different kind of music book in the sense that he really comes out very clearly talking about how the idea of, of learning technique and, and learning theory um, is limited. I mean, and that the main goal is is to get to the heart and soul of the music. And so <laughs> going through this book, and, and at one point I I, I kind of got stuck with some fingering. He gets into details of, of fingering bass lines. So I, I did some research. I was seeing if there's any forums. Maybe there were people who were discussing the book. And eventually I found a phone number on his website and I called it and there he was. The, um, 
the author of this this book that that has inspired me. And uh, we arranged. He was gracious enough to come over and spend time here at Sennheis Records. Um, he he showed me the fingering that uh, that I was stuck on and, and a bunch of other things. We got to jam together a little bit. It was really really a pleasure having him here. Eddie's really an amazing individual. Besides being a really talented educator and author of these books that are not just for Hammond players or keyboard players for that matter. There's a number of, of books he has on general approach to jazz and jazz theory. It's really worth checking those out. And he's really an incredible player. He he cut his teeth in the Philadelphia scene, and he studied with the great Big John Patton, who's a lesser-known jazz and soul organist, but certainly one of the greats. And apparently his teaching style was very unique, as Eddie talks about in our conversation. It just so happens that I had really good timing in getting in touch with him because he had just come back to live in New York City from living in Japan for many years, where he ran clubs, uh, Hammond organ clubs, and played with players over there. And through it all, what, what comes through is, is a man who has real passion for music, a real deep soul connection to music, and a real skill and eloquence in being able to teach, which is very unique, because one could teach all sorts of techniques, but when it comes to jazz and blues-based music, soul-based music, it really is about the soul. It's, it's something that really can't be taught. The technical things that are taught in schools, as we discussed in, in our conversation, are like the foundation and the structure in terms of how a person would approach music, but they're just, they're just the paints. They're just the paintbrushes. They're not the art itself. So I think Eddie has a real talent in being able to con convey that, to teach things that are technical, but really through every step, emphasizing the main purpose, which is the, how mu music should bring out something that's deep within a person and not just be something that exists on the surface through technique and external things. It was really a pleasure to speak with him. I've really learned a lot besides having learned from his books and his videos, and I'll, but then to have him here in the studio, it was a real, real pleasure, a real treat. So before we get to the interview, I just want to, again, thank our patrons who really make it possible to release these sessions and make them available for free. Also, the music that we produce here at Sennheis Records, as well in the public releases that we make available. Please consider joining our awesome patrons. Go to SennheisRecords.com to find out how to get involved, to check out the music that we're releasing. All the podcast episodes are there. There's a number of patron-only rewards that are tracks that are either unreleased tracks or pre-released tracks. So check them out over there. And besides the financial support that being a patron entails, it really is a, a moral support to what we're doing over here. So please, please consider um, checking that out and becoming a patron a couple dollars a month. It goes a really long way. So <laughs> that being said, hope you get a lot out of our conversation with the great Eddie Landsberg.
it's a pleasure to have you. It's here a pleasure to be here <laughs> in the studio, and I um, got to know you because I, I started getting more serious about the Hammond, particularly bass lines and bass pedals, and was a little bit lost and was looking for resources. And your book came up in a search, and mm -hmm. I, you know, of all the books that I saw, like I zoned in on that one. Or telling telling friends of mine that like oh I'm working on the Hammond I'm working on this particular book this guy's great he's like thank you um, <laughs> so that's how I got to know you and then or at least through the book mm -hmm. and then I was I had a question about some fingering and I went uh, and looked online cell mm -hmm. phone number there and we got in touch called yeah. you there you were now you're, you're here <laughs> so I really appreciate you coming down it's like manifesting, you know, it's, a teacher from, from the paper, you know, into real, into real life. And Great. back in America. <laughs> yeah. Well, welcome back. Timing so you came perfect, back from yeah. Japan. So I know that, um, mm -hmm. I want to, uh, you just moved, how recently did you move back from it's Japan? It's about a two eventful years, but yeah. Two years. I was there for 20 years on and off. Wow. Yeah. So if you don't mind, we can go back to the beginning. Mm -hmm. So to your earliest musical experiences. Mm -hmm. Or maybe your early, if you have an early musical memory, something that inspired you mm -hmm. from when you were you were a kid. Yeah, well, I grew up in the type of uh, household where you kind of had to take piano lessons, mm -hmm. and I remember uh, we went to a, a some kind of music shop, and I remember seeing the piano rolls uh, for the player pianos, and and uh, being impressed watching the guy bang away at the piano. And I remember in uh, public school they'd give you an aptitude test. And I think uh, they, they decided it was the piano. And my mother would call me Liberace or Barry Manilow or something. <laughs> and uh, that was my upbringing. But I fell in love with jazz when I was about uh, maybe 12 or 13. Uh, it was almost like a religious experience. I just remember hearing it and laying down on the floor and the room was spinning. Because the music goes in like different directions at the same time. It's almost like a candle. And you're like focused, I forget what it's called, the, like the, the bottom part of the candle. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it can go in any direction. And it was like pulling, it was, it was just, it was, it was a religious experience. So what were you listening to? Like, how did you discover? Was it radio? Dizzy, it was, I know it was Dizzy Gillespie uh -huh. because I thought the name, they said Dizzy, you know, it's a funny sounding name unless, yeah. until you get in the jazz. It was WRTI. I turned the dial too far to the left. I don't know if it's like that now that jazz radio stations would always be like on the far end of the dial. Yeah. And I just <clears throat> laid down on the floor in my room listening and was, this is the music I wanted to play. This is in Philly? This was in Philly. The real, jazz, uh, real jazz town. Real jazz town. I went to the Philly, the public library, and I got, I got an uh, a, a album just because of the way the guy on the cover looked. Um, it, was, uh, remember, it was Eddie Jefferson. That was my first CD, Remembering Eddie Jefferson. It was a tribute. And uh, I decided I'm going to become a jazz musician. I didn't know there were white jazz musicians, so I thought I was being rebellious too. But eventually, I found out that uh, all sorts of people play jazz. And, uh, that's, I guess, the path how it began. So, did but, you, but yeah. I, sh I should say, Mickey Katz. Oh, okay. You know Mickey yeah. Katz. Yeah, the the clarinet. That's yeah. That's and comedian and yeah, yeah. Joel Gray's father. And uh, hearing his albums, I was exposed to jazz, but it was sung in Yiddish. So right. it was, it was a. Uh, uh, that's also one thing that got me en route to playing jazz. Oh, cool. So yeah. So so the, so you from listening, obviously you had already played. You had like a, it was classical the lessons. No, that you I, were... I was like. You're not a good player. <laughs> I was a kid who didn't want to. Right, okay. I loved uh, banging away at the piano. Dr. John, by the way, yeah. was an early <laughs> influence. But I never got anywhere. And I was, like most players, and from what you told me, similar, it was, it's a struggle. 
and I was trying to find the the path. And at that point, I couldn't do anything. So. So when did you start to feel it? Flowing, you mean you made a decision to be a jazz musician, but translating that to the actual instrument. Okay, here's a funny story, and I hope this will inspire some of your listeners. I think the process of listening is as important as the process of studying. So if you spend 20 years doing nothing other than listening, and you're buying the books, and you know, you buy instructional books, they wind up under the bench, you don't use them, it's not wasted time. It's listening. So through my teenage years, I, I registered for lessons, but I didn't prepare. I didn't study. I didn't go anywhere. And I knew I had a learning disability, too. And when I reached, uh, when I met Big John Patton, that was my big leap. But until then, I was learning, and sounds were getting inside my head. And I was thinking one day, number one, I'm going to figure out the secret to learning this music, and I'm going to teach people. And uh, number two, I'm going to make my own dream album. Hmm. And so it was when I met John, I guess I forgot where I was, somewhere in my 20s. Uh, I don't know if you know Pete Falico. The, uh, if you don't, we're gonna, I'm going to introduce you to him. World's foremost jazz organ authority. He introduced me to John, and John became the ultimate coach. And I also began um, reading a book by Jimmy Amadea uh, on uh, harmony. And John's style of teaching involved a lot of yelling, shouting, <laughs> hitting upside the head. And then through studying Jimmy Amadea, through, I don't know if you've heard of the Schillinger method, and on my own, I had to figure out why John was beating me up. <laughs> and, but it, it worked. Uh-huh. It really, he, he, he focused me, but in a, uh, what's the word, like a primal mm. <clears throat> way. And then I began to study things and put it together. And then I said, okay, let me come up with some methodologies that reflect the, um, the, the spirit and the experience of the John Pattons of the world. But you can't punch people to teach them. <laughs> so I came up with my own method. So, but do you feel your method, I mean, I, um, go back to your story, but just because mm-hmm. this part may be for later in the story, but just a, a question about your method mm-hmm. in terms of the books you've written, mm-hmm. you feel like you convey, it, it's a, an in-person thing in particular, or, or actually that the books can, alone in some ways can convey some of that spirit. I'm still developing it. Okay. Um, and the books were something I put together very quickly. A lot of people, and thank you very much, such as mm. yourself, have said it's helped them. Mm. Um, right now, I'm finally at the point where after all these years, I'm kind of like, there's a pedagogy coming out. I'm working on my uh, education degree, another mm. master's. But um, it's there's some of it is in the book, but my whole concept is, when you want to teach something to somebody, use the simplest language possible. And I think a lot of music theory language is not how people think. Because mm. we have to connect emotion to theory, and I think the theory is there, but there's something missing. Mm. And so, I don't know if you agree with me, but my method, I kind of, it's like very down to earth, mm-hmm. and it's practical, Definitely. and I don't, and I've taught English as a second language. Now I'm yammering a lot, but when you teach, you shouldn't talk too much. You want to say the fewest words that lead to the most action, and uh, that's and I, I called my method the Seven Secrets of Jazz and Soul. By the way, but. I love it. Well, well th- you have another <coughs> book that's with that title, right? Quite no. quite a few poorly edited books. Now that I'm back in America, we're gonna get them in shape, um, and I I really want to get this. This is my going to be my life mission uh, to try to create this method that anybody. Uh, can become a, a musician without having to be. I mean, I feel that I don't know if you agree or disagree, but the books—they're kind of like—it's almost geared towards people who are engineers and very technical, very geeky. Some people are great musicians, can't read music, you know. Mm-hmm. So how do we 
convey things. John was able to convey things with a slap upside the head, but he taught me a lot. And mm -hmm. there are ways to teach serious music theory without getting too technical, but getting deep. Okay, so let's go back, because okay. I want to I hear uh, definitely more about that for sure. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to so how you got to the point of being listening to Dizzy Gillespie on your floor <laughs> to, you know, spending years listening and then to being, you know, slapped by Big John Patton. So what, what, he did what, slap me. And, and, I believe it. Yeah. So what, what happened in between? How, how did you find them? What was happening in your life? Were you playing? Obviously, you were, you were looking to play, but what, what was your experience during those years leading up to that? It was not until my 20s that I really started. I was a very late achiever. And uh, I was just a dreamer and a rebel and uh, would cut school to go to record stores and stuff like that. It wasn't until I got with John that he really got me into shape. And the secret, which I think you already know it, but the, the, I'll, I'll find out. Okay. <laughs> but uh, the, he, he, he had a very simple secret that got me out playing within a few months of getting with him. Can you guess what it is? Or besides the violence? <laughs> um, I don't want to adventure. <laughs> 12 bar blues. Okay. F, yeah. Blues and F. Yeah. Sit there. You play those blues. You don't rush. You don't get lost. If you get lost, you don't stop playing. Mm -hmm. um, you just play it and play it. And count. Learn how to count. Mm -hmm. And everything goes from there. Mm. And uh, the blues has all the same chords all the other tunes play but it's this form and then every little bad habit i had he just beat the living daylights out of me <laughs> but it but it all starts with the blues i think soulful music so before you met him were you you were you were just desiring to play so you weren't really playing i was, I was buying instruments and and not learning to play so you them. came to him mm. basically with just the skills you had from the, the yeah. years of piano lessons i had some i had stuff before and then uh, pete falico thought we would be like he he hooked us up so how did you find pete falico what, what? um pete was doing uh back then they didn't have podcasts he had a website and he i forgot how he was active um this is like 25 30 20 wow 25 mm. years ago and um I would talk back and forth to Pete, and sometimes I would send him these little um, recordings of mine. I would do little silly things. I can't. We can't talk about it here. But and he said, you know, you're probably I'm a nutcase. John was a little crazy. The two of you are perfect together, and he knew my passion. Uh -huh. And if you if you read the liner notes, I, I sorry I couldn't bring my CDs there in, down in Philly, but the liner notes tell the whole story. Actually, it's on my website. You can read the okay. the story. Yeah, so yeah, I've checked it out. The um, you write the story of how well you also how you mm -hmm. found um, right. So it's written. You have written. Um, so you were interest, particularly interested in organ. Mm -hmm. So obviously you found Big John Patton not just because you're interested in But I wanted to be a, I wanted to be an R&B player. Okay. Because, you know, John is um, very... Well, uh, he was he was like the, the middle ground between the soul jazz move, soul and jazz. Mm -hmm. um, he was avant-garde in some ways, but he was also very funky and groovy. And I liked that organ. I listened um, through my teen years. James Brown was my idol, Tower of Power. Uh, I also liked jazz, all kinds of music. But I thought, well, John will teach me how to play like a real funky type Reuben Wilson mm -hmm. uh, thing. And that was not what John's plan for me was. Mm -hmm. Well, so for, so for people who don't know, because he's not, mm. uh, John Patton is not as well known yeah. as somebody who was Groove Holmes or Jimmy Smith. Or, yeah. you, know, um, what, you know, maybe you could tell us a little bit about... I'd, I'd like to know your perspective about how you would you would describe Big John Patton and his. <clears throat> so in the nineteen sixties, uh, especially, you had all these uh, R and B players 
coming up from the South, some coming into New York and wanting to get into this Art Blakey, hard bop thing. And as I recall, Ben Dixon, who was uh, the drummer with Grant Green, Lou, Dix, um, uh, Lou Donaldson with that group, I think he pulled Grant Green and John Patton up from the Chitlin circuit. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know, the, that was the black mm -hmm. circuit. And um, <clears throat> John was playing with... Uh, um, Lloyd Price at the time, mm. a personality, a big mm -hmm. rock and roll star. New Orleans guy. Yeah. Place, yeah. Oh, yeah, he was New Orleans yeah. guy. There's your territory. Yeah. And he was the, I don't, I don't know if you know the term straw boss. That's the, yeah. which is why I got beaten up. He was the guy who's responsible for keeping the band in shape. <laughs> anyway, here's the idea. Let's have jazz played by people who know the blues intimately, are interested in jazz, are young, and uh, can give a more... How much I like a contemporary sound, something that can play on the radio, not just, you know, the sophisticated cocktail music. So that's how John started to emerge. He was one of, of course, Jimmy Smith broke through. Mm -hmm. And then they started after Jimmy Smith became so popular and Jack McDuff, Jimmy McGriff, mm -hmm. they were looking for lots of young players. And John was that generation. I yeah, think so, John was he's from that generation. So he's from this generation of these players who were coming out on the Blue Note label. Um, who was he was very unique because almost all the players were copying Jimmy Smith, including my first teacher. Actually, before I studied with him, I studied briefly with Shirley Scott. And, mm. um, you know, jazz is about originality. And y all these players are trying to play as well as Jimmy Smith. You're not going to, you know, <laughs> outplay Jimmy Smith. But John's thing was he was, he, he had R this R&B, he was young and he's playing this R&B rock and roll, but he also was avant-garde, experimental, off-center. Mm -hmm. You heard some of his... Uh, yeah, it's great. I mean, I, one of the things that, that like caught my eye, that uh, caught my ear, that he that he does, because I'm uh, a huge fan of the meters. Mm -hmm. and, oh, Sissy. And I know, yes, and he covers Sissy Strut, which I, you know, it's an, an, uh, like a groove organ version of that. I mean, obviously this organ... Art Neville plays organ in the meters, mm -hmm. but um, yeah, that was you know something that really are, already I'm like, I, I had a it's, liking for. And I didn't I didn't remember. It's been so long since I heard the album. I said, "Well, what were you playing? That's pretty nice." Because John was always changing his style, uh -huh. and it was hard to play with him because he you would work with him and he would keep coming up with new ideas. And when he came up with new ideas, he assumed that you knew what his idea already was. Um, his, his thing, he wasn't about technique. Mm -hmm. He was about feel, but he was very conceptual. So he worked on the chords and harmony. But yeah, so John was, um, I think he started to become, he, like, he's, he's, how do I say it? He's like a player's choice. People always loved him, but. Mm -hmm. But he didn't get the fame he deserved. And then when he was nearing his, unfortunately, before he passed away, he was starting to experience a comeback. I think I was his last student, to be honest. Well, I first heard about him from you. Mm -hmm. um, how long did, did you study with it him? Was a, it was a couple of years. I would come up to his apartment in uh, Montclair, New Jersey, and uh, he would give me a four-hour lesson. Uh, wow standing on top of me playing nothing but the blues marching behind me and hitting me upside the head when i did things i wasn't supposed to do <laughs> so but you felt somehow you felt that was effective you didn't feel resentful about that at all um i think discipline is i, I don't do this to my students but <laughs> <laughs> discipline is okay when it's you know there's a it's not him getting angry just because he's you know uh, you frustrated know. yeah impatient yeah. he was really one time he kept um he like he's knocking into me 
and he was marching behind me and he, don't stop, don't rush. And I said, John, how you're making me nervous. Play, how, how am I supposed to play? He says, well, what are you going to do? You're going to go play in a restaurant. Someone's going to drop some dishes and you're going to, uh, I'm trying yeah. to use clean language here in your pants. Yeah. So what are you going to do? And at that point I realized, okay, he was teaching me how to focus, mm. how to concentrate, don't stop. And when you're playing a live gig, your biggest fear is a train wreck. Right. Right. So someone makes a mistake and then suddenly one person stops, another person. His whole thing was, okay, let's pretend this is the real world. Mm. And that's how I'm going to get you in the plane. Unfortunately, he couldn't, as I do in my books, he couldn't spell out like what he was telling me not to do sometimes. Okay. You have to figure it out until he stopped hitting you. <laughs> yeah. So, because he would keep saying like, oh, don't close that, those chords, don't close it. I didn't know what he meant by that. So then I had to eventually teach myself. And uh, fortunately, everything fell into place. So obviously you were able to accept this form of instruction. Mm -hmm. um, he had a, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming he had a, a very personable sweet side that he, yeah. you, you related to him on that. He was, uh, he reminded me though of Herman Munster sometimes. <laughs> First time I came to his apartment, uh, as Montclair I remember, I came early, 20 minutes early. I walked up the steps and he said, what do you mess, I'll, I'll, I'll replace some of the language. Okay. He used more uh, colorful language. What are you messing with me for? I've been waiting for you for, what are the, you're an hour late. You're gonna get, just go home if you're not gonna take this seriously. And his wife was calming, I was 20 minutes early. He was just crazy, he liked to freak people out. And so I used to try to introduce students to him and usually they would, <laughs> they would fly out the door. It was like Herman Munster on the Munsters. Um, he was a moody guy, but it was like an artist, like when he would play. If he played something that was joyous, he became joyous. And mm. if it was dark, in the middle of one solo, mm -hmm. he would, you could see the look on his face. So wow. everything was, he wasn't like a perfect guy who ran perfect runs, but everything came from his soul. And he had that kind of manic-y type character. Wow. But he was also a genius. He was very, you know, philosophical in his own way. So it was definitely an experience. So while you were studying with him, you already were starting to to gig and within a few months that with i guess it was in a few months i started to do my first gigs and um did, did you did you ever meet selino clark this is the no okay the um charles young post in harlem is the no. big jam session for all young players now you know who are playing straight jazz and one day i forget why uh i went to that gig um, i'm trying to remember i can't remember why <laughs> but um they heard me play and it so happened there were a bunch of guys from the uh, Charles Young Post in Philadelphia visiting. This is a Afro-American veterans group. Mm -hmm. And uh, they heard me play and they liked what they heard and they said, we're going to get you a gig. Come, come on back on the bus. We'll get you back to Philly. You're going to be our band leader. So I started playing alongside, I don't know if you know Bayard Lancaster, but famous avant-garde uh, sax player, had relations with Sunrun, mm -hmm. groups like that. So I started playing at their club, this predominantly Afro-American club, all Afro-American. They set up my organ and I started playing my style of jazz that was being taught to me, of course, that was being perfected by John. So when you, when you so it was before <coughs> you, you went to Big John Patton that you were like, had your eyes on the organ or it was like, because he was an organ player, uh, you, you took on the organ? Good question. So I love soul music and you know, soul music, the organ 
is a very important instrument. So I think I started to get into the organ because of... Um, uh, there's a group called the Counts. I don't know if you heard of them. I know you like the meters. If you like mm -hmm. the meters, you'll like the Counts. Okay. Uh, and of course, Tower of Power, James Brown. All those groups had the organ in it. And um, that was when I started turning towards Hammond organ. I also mm -hmm. like Fender Rhodes and, and Clavinet. But there's something about the Hammond organ. You picked one up? You had you had At a Jewish at funeral time? parlor, yeah. And, and that was <laughs> after you started with Bing John Patton or before? That was before. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm, the chronology, I'm not, it's a little bit scattered in my brain. Okay. But we back then, it was much cheaper than they are now. Right. <laughs> and... Uh, Someone, and it might have been our rabbi, identified one in a Jewish funeral parlor, mm -hmm. uh, and we we bought it. And actually, no, they had they had just given it up to a nursing home, and then it came from the nursing home to my living room, and then I started messing around uh, with it. Yeah, it was, in, it was in good shape, and you. It was yeah, very yeah. good shape. Um, so I'm trying to rescue it. It's uh, abandoned down in New Jersey at uh, my father's house. Now. Oh, okay. So, okay. yeah, it's. Um, but that was my Hammond organ. Yeah. Wow. And and so that you would take that to gigs. I mean, for uh, actually no, because after I got married, now you're. This, I feel I'm a psychoanalyst. You're really pulling this out of me. <laughs> the um, this is the interesting stuff to me. <laughs> like, no, no, because what happened yeah. was I think after my wedding I got some. You know, you get money at the wedding. Yeah, yeah. And I bought an A100. Okay. And then the A100, and uh, I remember I had a Leslie. It was hard to get find the Leslie. We finally found one. Wait, the, the one you got found in the funeral parlor was a B3? That was a C3. A C3, okay. C3. But the A100 we brought to the Charles Young Post. Okay. And then uh, that was my main spot. But that was like one of these gigs where like everyone in town comes to. Mm -hmm. um, I do, cause sh Should I tell you about my like first experience playing at like a mostly black club yeah. in Oregon? Yeah. So this organist heard about me. His name was Austin Mitchell. He was, uh, I believe, an accompanist to Ella Fitzgerald. He was in his close to 90 then. <laughs> he, he's passed away. No, he's in his late 80s. And uh, somebody brought, no, no, it was a sax player who I was going to get together with, an older guy, brought Austin to my house. Austin watched me play. Austin, similar to you, looked at my feet. <clears throat> and, and back then they did play mostly he says no you're gonna have to learn how to play the foot paddles uh -huh. but there's a session uh near i don't know if you know temple university in philly philly yeah, yeah. yeah. so he brought me to uh this this all-black club and there's this player named charlie nesbitt he used to play organ with cat anderson from duke ellington's band he's playing the left hand but he's playing foot pedals competently he had string bass the band is, I mean, it's like something out of a movie. People mm -hmm. are up and dancing. And, uh, you know, Ray Bryant, uh, yeah. his brother was the drummer. Wow. And it's this groovy kind of scene out of a movie. So this lady, Dottie Smith, uh, and you probably don't know her, but you know Louis Jordan, maybe. Yeah, of course. She was a member of Louis Jordan's group, oh. and she played timbales. And she was with that Jackie Davis was his organist. Mm -hmm. Louis, Louis Jordan sponsored a lot of organ players. Mm. She was the host. She walks up to me and says, honey, you're going to come up and play a tune. I said, no, I'm not going to come up and play a tune. Of course not. <laughs> Are you out of your mind? I didn't say it like that. She said, no, you're going to come up. You'll play something. I, nah, you're going to come up. All right. You know, she persuaded me. And I was scared, lifeless. Fortunately, John Patton had given me some boot camp training. Yeah. Uh, so I, I went up. And um, in my early 20s, and... Uh, I sit down at the organ. He had, he had two Leslies. Hmm. 
And uh, these are the guys, these are like the real thing and they're way older than me and I'm not, you know what? And that's my <laughs> attitude and it's, and it's a good attitude to have. Yeah. We were talking about something similar. I think uh, modesty, Yeah. you know. So I'm looking down and I, I'm like, okay, I'll play a blues. So I'm playing like this. Sorry I didn't make eye contact with you earlier today. <laughs> but normally you should make constant eye contact with the people you're playing with. Uh-huh. But So I'm playing the organ. I know people can't see me doing the gestures now. Uh, and suddenly, like, you know, like I'm on fire. I don't know if you're like when you're really mm. scared and you're nervous. But I decided to look up mm-hmm. after I don't know how many courses. And I looked up because the room was white. Mm. It's like something out of a movie again. <laughs> Everyone was up and dancing. Wow. And I'm like, okay, this is what I'm, you know, this is the right thing to do. Yeah. Uh, and I'm like, wow. And so I still felt like I was on f- kind of like fire. <laughs> mm. And there's still like parts of the room that were white, but I'm just seeing people dancing everywhere. And then we did the second tune, which I'm sure you know is Sunny, a funky yeah. version. Yeah. And then after I got down, people were giving me hugs wow. and they were asking me, who are you? And uh, then I'm finding out these are these old school players who just happen to hang out there. At that point, I realized what I wanted to do, how I wanted to play, and that instead of connecting with Joey DeFrancisco's generation or Sam Yael, great players, I wanted to connect with the older generation but present it. Because how often do you see people up and dancing the jazz? Hmm. And I like R&B. R&B is dance music. Yeah. So that was the, that my, my big... Uh, cool. I don't know how we got down that path. But that no, was, that's, <laughs> that's uh, an important piece. <clears throat> so, yeah. So, so from there you started um, gigging? I mean, so you started I started developing. gigging. And shortly thereafter, um, I recorded an album called Remembering Eddie Jefferson. Uh, ben Dixon, who was the Lou Donaldson drummer, produced, co-produced it. Uh, James Spaulding, very famous avant, not avant-garde, more hard bop sax player, was on it. A uh, great guitar player, Coleman Millay, who uh, he was with uh, Sugarman, uh, Adam Scone's group, really good group. Uh, Sugarman three, Sugarman five, Sugarman something. Uh, and then uh, Randy Johnston, I don't know if you know him, great uh, player on a lot of Lou Donaldson kind of. He was touring with Lou Donaldson. Anyway, it was like a, a it was an all-star session. I loved, and Eddie Jefferson was a vocalist, and I had Giacomo Gates, a vocalist, take over the session. Now, I'm an organ player. Mm. Do you get the logic here? Yeah. I'm not fully developed yet. <laughs> I have a feel. You heard me yeah. today. I have a feel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea is, okay, I'm not going to, if I got up there and try to play like Joey, yeah. it's a failure. I'm not going to, especially back then, I'm not going to cut Joey or Sam. He wasn't out. I think Sam was yet to emerge. But whatever. Okay, well, how do I do something that's me? I'm not a great soloist yet. I play good, great bass. And then I'm like, okay, well, it's not about me, this album. This Mm. album's going to be about Eddie Jefferson, who I admire. And I'm going to take Eddie Jefferson's music, but we're going to use the jazz organ Mm. style. I'm going to surround myself with great players and I'm going to know that I can that I'm going to support them and I'm going to do my job as best I can and that's how we're going to make a good album and the album it charted. Wow. It, it it was I think it made it up to like number 23 uh on the National Jazz Week charts. NPR was playing it. Uh I think Philly it was like made it to number 2. Well, I'm not proud of my playing, but I did my job. Wow. So that was that was so, my yeah. How did that come I mean how did it come together? Did you how did you get all those players? I and mean, you, you were already had acquainted with them from the playing Saint, you were doing. St. Pete was there, my friend Pete Falico. Yeah. Uh, 
the way I uh, connected with a lot of them also, uh, I don't know if you, the name Bill Hyde, uh, you'll, the more you look into jazz organ lore, he's this musician's musician that mm. everybody knows. And he has this Tom Waits type character, really yeah. cool guy. But he was trying to pull things together for me. Uh, and a lot of people were supporting me when they heard that, oh, this young kid, he's studying with John Patton and da 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 da. So they really wanted me to, you know, emerge. Although I felt I was a little young and not developed enough to really uh, become a leader. Uh-huh. Which I acted like a sideman on my yeah. own. But I, I think you have to be humble. Yeah. And as long as you're humble, things work out. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I started to emerge, but I also uh, wound up in Japan somehow. <laughs> Wait, so how, what, what, at what point in the, all this did you run out of Japan? So how, after the Eddie Jefferson album? Yeah, it was after the Eddie Jefferson like album. Like right after? Or? Uh, it, was, it was like just, it was, it was, playing, the, it was playing on the radio. And uh, I know I did a, a tour of Sweden, hmm. and I forgot if I if if I had been to Japan before that because I I did two stints, and uh, but whatever the case is that I I wound up in Japan somehow and somehow I wound up running a club, and uh, <laughs> okay so let's go so this is a good time to get into that because that's like so what, you just you, you were bound and gagged on a plane and so you but there was some demand for your. You, you did a tour of Japan? How did you end up? Uh, no, the, it was... Um, I'm trying to remember how I got... Oh, it's a, it's a funny story because at my... You know, I loved 1970s soul music yeah. when I was a teenager. And uh, there was a... They used to have this New Orleans festival in Philadelphia. And I remember the meters might have been playing. And there was a guy sitting in front of me wearing a Funkadelic t-shirt. And back then, like, young white kids weren't into now they're it's like the big thing but i was like shocked to see someone wearing a funkadelic t-shirt around what you what year is this oh my gosh i would have been in my 22 maybe i'm 22 23 was this this is a yearly festival it's a yearly festival i went to i probably went to the same festival probably different year who was playing well dr john the meters um Mm -hmm. That's what, what I remember. And there was a bunch of other crawfish. It was like a was it called crawfish festival or something? Wow, we might have uh Bumped shoulders, yeah. And um, the, the Dr. John had the uh, Blues Brothers horns, like Lou Marini. At the, the it was my first time seeing Dr. John. In fact, I was. Uh, uh, this is embarrassing to admit, but I was, I was uh, kind of green with with, oh with the music. Like I was into the meters, and I was like, I had to turn to my friend, my friend, Dr. John is playing. I couldn't. I didn't get it at first because mm-hmm. like, it's a, a big scene. And I was, I was like, is this funky? <laughs> It was one week. He's like, he's like, yeah, it's funky. It's funky. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was super. Oh my gosh, that's the J- Dr. John put on it. Mm. Yeah, it's a different kind of music. It's it's like I mean it's it's New Orleans, but it's yeah. also that seventies funk and soul, and he had a great horn section. And uh, I remember afterwards, I wanted to get his autograph, and I shouldn't have done it. I went to grab at his jacket, and I remember his security guards. <laughs> giving me this look like they were going to kill me but uh it was it was an incredible experience but i i for the first time um i i made a japanese friend and then uh, he gave me uh, as a gift this is months later mm-hmm. uh a, a board a game board it's mm-hmm. a game called shogi okay which is japanese chess filled out for a philadelphian uh shogi shogi rhymes with hoagie I don't know if you know Hoagie. Okay, Hoagie's yeah. our sandwich. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So it was interesting, yeah. and I got good at it. <laughs> and, okay. 
um, good enough that I started making many Japanese friends. Whatever the case, yeah. I wound up in Japan. And I was also teaching English. <laughs> Whatever the case, you're yeah. leaving that part out. Whatever you? the case. Yeah. You know, just, uh, <laughs> my life is never simple. But yeah, I wound up in Japan. And, okay. um, <laughs> you know, the Japanese really love our music more than we love our own music, mm. meaning jazz, R&B. Yeah. So, um, and then I think actually, I'm, I'm a little confused with the time frame. This could have been before I studied with uh, John Patton. Because, okay. because I remember I went there the first time I wasn't a musician, but the second time mm. I went to Japan, oh, okay. I, was, uh, I was married, I had a wife, we opened the club. Wow. So. And, but, uh, so obviously you learned the language, you not perfectly. Okay, not, but not but passably. I mean, yeah, I can get on. And you felt obviously comfortable enough there that you started business. I mean, I thought it was the only thing I could do. As you know, we're not living in an era, and I don't think jazz was ever like that. That people you can make great money. There's legendary jazz musicians who we know had day jobs, mm -hmm. <laughs> even when they were famous. Um, so, yeah, I just, I had to find a way. I wanted to be able to play jazz, but also, you know, make a living. Were you playing over there before you started? Um, I played some gigs. There was a, there, a matter of fact, there was a club with a Hammond organ I used to play with. Um, and it's funny because I don't, I think by that time I'd stopped drinking, you know, so it's the weirdest thing in the world. I don't <laughs> smoke. I don't drink. <laughs> I'm opening a jazz club. Yeah. What a smart move. Well, so, so obviously you saw... Uh, a niche you saw that there was a need for whatever kind of yeah. you know, club that you could bring and in 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 japan there's a thing called a kisa mm. uh this is a uh you would love this mm. a cafe like a, it could be a coffee bar it could be a little bar and they sit and listen to each other listen to record albums okay and it's a way like you have a, a great record collection and you kind of show it off to your customers and they sit and drink and it's very traditionally Japanese. It's quiet? Like people are sitting and listening? I mean, besides They're, the music? They listen, they're atten and the Japanese people, they know the sessions. Yeah. Um, and, and I, this is like, but when you're at these places, it feels so Japanese, even though it's centered around American jazz. Okay. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Harukami. Okay. Uh, you know, the, the, the writer yeah. ran one of those kind of places. Huh. But I was like, what if I were to take an izakaya, this is a traditional Japanese tavern, mm -hmm. and combine it? with a little jazz organ room. And uh, that's basically what I decided to do. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Without enough money to really pull it off as well as I wanted to. But it lasted for a number of years. Uh, yeah, it was, it was on and off. Um, and what happened was the first time, like about a year, the police were... <laughs> not that they liked my music, but right. we, we the people on the block, actually, most of the shops liked us because we pulled people onto the block and I would introduce them to the local shops. Our neighbor had no customers, mm -hmm. so he'd call the cops. Oh. So I used to do my sessions and I remember like I'd be playing and I look up and the Tokyo police at the door and uh, I'm hosting the session and <laughs> dealing with things, running back and forth, talking to the cops. Uh, it was definitely an experience. <laughs> it was a gritty part of downtown Tokyo too. <sighs> So imagine uh, Bushwick, Tokyo style. Wow, it's it's hard for me to imagine. <laughs> I've never been to Japan. So I I, I played jazz. I got interrogated interrogated by cops. I ran my shop. We served like traditional Japanese. It's called shochu, which is a Japanese drink. So uh, so what? So you just moved back two years ago. 
So, here, yeah. what, so how many years were you there? And, or how, how long on was and the off club for open? 20 years. And I'm a little trying to get... The clubs like would open and close, open, close. Uh-huh. We had several locations. The last incarnation was about uh, maybe five years ago. When you left, what what happened to the club? Uh, the club was already closed then. Mm-hmm. I was winding down. My I received word about my mother was ill. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you know, I love Japan, but there's a glass ceiling. Mm-hmm. And... You know, I can speak enough to run a business, but in terms of the literacy from a 12-year education, that was a limit. And my own education, I wanted to, you know, move forward. Hmm. And I love Japan, but, you know, it's just the time. So I came back here. Although I was shocked because when I left America, I think jazz, oh, Greenwich Village, you know, there's there's clubs. You just walk down the street. There's music. You know, it, it used to be like that. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember. And there were and there were. Jewish delis in New yeah. York, <laughs> and so it's totally changed. Right, it's changed a lot. I mean, those things are still there, but it, it's a totally different. It's not like a, it's not like Greenwich Village where you just oh, just walk, you know. Right, except the tourist traps on Bleecker Street or something. But yeah, even that. I mean, it's kinda. it's not like it's like every place you go into right, or right. something. You kind of got to know where to go. Exactly, yeah. and, and and even that, it's nothing compared to to your. But I, I it might be because I'm snobby because. <laughs> When I left America, and not even jazz, but like, oh, Gil Scott Heron is playing here and uh, yeah. over there, you know, uh, uh, the, the Blues Brothers. Not, yeah, the Blues Brothers would play with Lou Marini or mm-hmm. whoever. It's like, now's a different generation. Yeah. But I've come back. Jazz is not what it, you know, used to be. And it used to be that you said you were a jazz musician. People, well, in Japan more so, but kind of like it was... A little. I'm thinking the a Japanese word. I forgot the English word. Not that you're superior, but people kind of. Yeah, there was some honor. There was some respect. And now people are yeah. like, okay, yeah, you know, it's yeah, not- yeah, it's true. It's it's. I mean, that's part of the, one of the reasons I called my band the Brooklyn Jazz Warriors mm-hmm. is realizing that that somebody who's like a real jazz snob might look down on our band because we're not like. But you yeah, had my jazz. endorsement. I gave well, you my endorsement. Oh, thanks. That Remember. means a lot to me, Eddie. <laughs> um, but, you know, that there are certain, whatever, there are certain people in the jazz world that would not consider generally what we do jazz. And then there, and then there's a whole other population of people that wouldn't even take a listen because the word jazz is, is in the title, even though they might like it because it's like rock and roll funk as well. So, but I kind of, my aim a, li- a little bit was, at least for myself, to like reclaim that word. I love that word. I love what it represents both musically um, and just the, the obviously the tradition of it, and it rep- to me it represents a certain kind of of uh, freedom mixed with with craft, you know. And, mm-hmm. and it's uh, so no, so I know what you mean. It's like it's a very misunderstood term that's sticking around, but but and it has to kind of be redefined. And, and yeah, you and know. you know what I like about I told you that your CD I really like. I listened. To, you have the two CDs I listened to. Uh, there's a there's one tune you're singing vocals. Um, uh, oh, there's more than one tune, but there's a really good song. I'm sorry, it's not coming to mind uh, right now. Sorry, <laughs> but I told you, you what yeah. it was. Uh, I think in an email. I really yeah yeah. I remember you, you mentioned. Um... Uh, it was at the station or oh subway station subway station. Yeah. I love that tune. Oh, thank you. So that's that's uh, yeah. Um, so how do you be an authentic artist? Do you just go and copy John Coltrane note for note, and does that make you a genius? Or do you write a tune that's in your soul? Maybe that's not <laughs> what people say, this is jazz, but it comes from your soul and it's your tune, which is more authentic. Right. But people are going to go for the guy who sounds like John Coltrane. 
Well, <laughs> it, it depends. It depends on the circle. I mean, I, th I, I, th yeah. I agree with you that, that that's become. I hear, you know, kind of the. I mean, I went to a, a jazz. Pro, I was in a jazz program at school, mm -hmm. and it's kind of. It's a tough. You know, the academic world of jazz is is a. It's a kind of a tough mix because it is, as as. Um, as much as the musicians were excellently trained musicians, um, it, and as much as like Miles Davis went to Juilliard, but that was like a real exception. Mm -hmm. But most of the musicians were not trained in that way. They were trained on the streets. They were trained in the, in the clubs. They were like, they, they were trained in the action as opposed mm -hmm. to, like you were saying before, <coughs> learning theory that you apply, then you apply. It's like there's a soul thing that's, that's coming similar to a rock and roll musician or a blues musician who's just coming from the heart. And then they, and then obviously all that skill and all that, that language is, is being a, a filtered through it. Exactly. And it, it's, it's just amazing. Like, um, so I, yeah, I don't like playing with some of these musicians who go through the universities. Um, cause there's sometimes it's just, they become cold and mechanical. Um, although my favorite musician, in New York, one of them is, do you know Jerry Weldon? Have you heard that name? I've heard the name, yeah. Jerry's incredible. He's on my second CD. He's a Rutgers guy. I'm also Rutgers, mm -hmm. but not music. He has, a, he, 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 well, but he was playing like alongside Dexter Gordon, I think, mm -hmm. like in latter years of, um, uh, he was playing with Lionel Hampton. So uh, I, I just, I just want people to play, like an old musician once, I complimented his music. And I, you know, I thought he was a great jazz player. He says, I don't play jazz. I play music. Hmm. And I think the best like players, there's you listen to jazz. Where does the repertoire come from? It comes from pop music. It mm -hmm. comes from Latin music. Uh, but then these young players come out and they're like, they want to play jazz. Jazz doesn't exist. <laughs> jazz is an attitude, maybe an approach. But if you only listen to jazz, how can you make great music? You know. Right. I mean, I think also the, the academic definition in, in the way it's studied in schools is a very narrow uh, era. I mean, there, there is a huge history of, of jazz. There's such a huge variety when you're studying this program I went to, and I know this is true about many programs, you're basically studying bebop and like through the hard bop era and, that, and, and those particular standards and mm -hmm. like... Um, and it, you know, the early, like New Orleans jazz, we never even talked about that, touched that. Do they call it pre-jazz or what? Yeah, it, was just, it wasn't even dealt with because it was, because that music is of such, I mean, I think it's maybe more obviously um, from from the gut, you know, in, in, a, in some ways, meaning you can, you can write down and intellectualize bebop because there's single lines and you can... Um, really discuss the the harmony and the theory mm. whereas with new orleans jazz and one of the things that i really always liked the, the idea from new orleans jazz which i'm i'm I, I tried to do in different musical formats um when you have multiple like a bat brass band or mm. like a you know traditional new orleans jazz band that where multiple people are soloing for me that and that that by the way that counterpoint that song <laughs> subway station mm. actually we do that we we're and I do that a lot, like with the saxophone and, and, and the keyboard, you know, mm -hmm. that, that idea of like, it's not just one soloist, you, you're, the, the, the melodies are being, right, that counterpoint that's being created in the spot. The idea of like there's one soloist in, in the spot is one style of It's of like jamming. the candle analogy yeah. I gave. Yeah. There's a grounding, but there's the, the way it can go, the flicker. Yeah, so that yeah. We, never, we never worked on that. Like that would have been something, but again, it, it's mm -hmm. just, 
I mean, obviously someone who, who has a broader sensibility can maybe go into one of those programs. Um, let's say me looking back there now, take advantage of all that time to play and all the time to study and then all the opportunity to, let's say, perform my own take on the music while studying mm -hmm. what they're teaching. But coming in as an impressionable student, I didn't have that reference point. So it was like, uh, mm -hmm. so I found I had to, to kind of, what, what I love about, unlearn a lot of things I learned. And, and what I love about your, your book, mm -hmm. the book that I have, and I know you have more, but I haven't been able to check that out. And I, I plan to check out more of your, of your books. And I'm especially looking forward to the work that you're going to be doing. Um, Cause I, I think it's very exciting. I think it's very important. Mm -hmm. But you explain things that 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 seem, I guess, maybe to certain older musicians obvious, mm -hmm. but to a young musician is not obvious at all. Like you start your book with here's the, the artist to listen to and how important listening is. Mm -hmm. And I, I, one of the things that I think was really challenging about the, the way we interacted with standards, for instance, like we had to just have this regular cafeteria gig. Mm -hmm. And I remember being like, so many tunes, which are, which are great tunes, and the original recordings are really inspiring and, and can be played in wonderful ways. But we beat the we beat the, the crap out of these tunes, and I and I hated them for years. Like mm -hmm. you know, so you you pull the the tune out of the the real mm -hmm. book or something. Maybe you've heard it a couple of times, but the spirit of it wasn't being like yeah. the, the idea like it's not about the tune it's about the spirit of the tune you can't play that tune you could play that tune in, in a corny way and and, and but we're it's missing academic the material yeah. yeah so i had to like for years the like those monk tunes were like mm -hmm. i had to <laughs> like forget how you know how it go, went in the well cafeteria. that was the concept of my uh club that uh, I wanted people to play. Japanese, when they play jazz, sometimes the feel is missing. Mm. They collect, they're heavy music collectors. They mm. know what it should sound like. Live jazz just doesn't work out. For some reason, they're just too reserved. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, this is music. Uh, we got to play it with a rock and roll uh, mentality. Yeah, We got to swing. And remember, by the way, early rock and roll was swinging yeah. music. Yeah. Uh, by the way, for jazz organ, I recommend uh, Willis Jackson, his sessions. It's hot. A yeah. good, it, this is stuff we need to be able play these tunes. I know you don't like, I'm not saying you, but <clears throat> to the young musician, I know you're sick and tired of take the A train, you know, it's schmaltzy or whatever. Put in a beat to it, play it, wail it out. Because what all Charlie Parker did is he took away the melody and he put his own melody in. Maybe he understood the he understood the harmony on a deeper level, right. but but he was playing rhythm changes. George Gershwin, okay, uh, his tunes. It was a simple blues. He wrote how many blues did right. he write? Take the tune, make it your own. If you're just going to play the schmaltzy music, that's not jazz. I think if you, you know, go obviously mm. listen to someone Charlie Parker or almost anyone who's who's made a mark for themselves mm. in in music history in general. There, there's a fire. I mean, especially yeah. with there's a you know a fire that that you could play those same notes without that fire and there's no urgency there's no but that's what they learn to do in school right <laughs> or, 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 or rather that they don't it's right it's not that piece mm -hmm. and and you write then you write about that explicitly in your book it's it's that um it, and it's something that you, you think shouldn't have to be talked about, one would think. But the fact is that, that you're right. Young musicians do need to be tell. Listen, the music is nothing without the fire. That's and it, so yeah. start with the fire, add the, add the, the technique and the, and the, you know, the structure. Mm -hmm. But the fire is, you know, it's, it's not that, I mean, that's why punk music um, has, you know, has this, it's like the 
purest punk music is all fire and no technique but there's yeah. something really but that but that's not even the truth when you get dig down to the real punk scene mm-hmm. but like um the bottom line is that there's something really raw and wonderful about that that kind of music and mm-hmm. you know that because it's just like it it's that's all the music is about, is about on so many levels do they teach punk in college yet i'm sure I, they well, well that's the thing you could <laughs> If, if you would, it would be, it would be a real... I mean, they, I'm sure they, there's classes on punk history or whatever. But the fact is, if you to, to play music like that, you're right. You, you couldn't teach... I mean, like, you would just... It, what you would teach would just be, you know... Um, I'm sure they have degrees. Dig down to the end. Right, maybe. I, I don't know what's out there. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I, I want people to... I, jazz is kind of dead now, and it shouldn't be. It doesn't have to be. Well, there is a, yeah. I mean, I, I think that you're right in a certain mm-hmm. level. I, I, I've been discovering... I mean, there, there's so much music out there. It's there like, is, yeah. And, and there's so many great things happening. Ultimately, um, when, when you were writing the books, you, you were writing while you were in Japan, or you were... Uh, the first ones were written, actually, at the time I did Remembering Eddie Jefferson... I have my ADHD. Oh my God, the proofreading. I got to work on this. Um, uh, the one that you have was written in Japan. Okay. Um, and it's actually the first one where I used a lot of music notation. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's very helpful. And it's, is yes. Um, I really enjoy, I really enjoy the, the, the casual approach. It feels like you're talking to me and, and, you know, you, you listed artists that like one needs to listen to and certain like, um, things that, that, other books don't even bother to tell you, like, like let me let me let you in a secret kind of, you know, little aside. And this is what John, this is, this is basically the kind of thing, the way John taught me. I'm doing it a little bit differently, but it's, yeah, the secret to being a good jazz organ bass player is just listening to bass players in general. Well, that, that, I, I'd already mm. been thinking that, and you really confirmed that for me, that it's like, um, it's almost like there's an identity thing with, like, and for me, who I play a lot of different instruments, and, mm. and sometimes you get feel like you spreading thin but finding that i was playing doing a lot of um covering the bass um wanting obviously with the organ but even with with the roads and i was doing gigs where i was um playing the bass and and you know i was thinking i remember i was would think about myself Mm -hmm. as like this is really hard to, to hold down the bass and do all this other stuff especially when you're singing and doing but like to start out I'm the bass player, and I just happen to be a keyboard player. That I got from your book, and that was is such mm-hmm. a a much more helpful way to think about it. Mm-hmm. And it's like you're saying how you approached your album. Like I'm going to start from the foundation. I'm going to support these other players. I think it's a wonderful way to to think about music in general, but particularly for a keyboard player, mm-hmm. particularly for for a keyboard player who's <laughs> well, you can see it feels like a lot of responsibility, and and it is. It but is. but mm-hmm. if you're taking all the other, if you're making your primary responsibility clear, I'm a bass player. Studying bass players, the role of the bass player. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a bass player. It's 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 a very empowering. It is a bass player controls everything, yeah. doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely. It's the hardest part. If you if you mess up in the middle of a sax solo, you can just start running chromatics or doing yeah. or even a keyboard solo. When yeah. you're playing bass, you gotta stay with the changes, yeah. and it's 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 intimidating. Um, but here's the secret with counter any kind of music counterpoint mm-hmm. in general. If what, what the guy over there is paying a lot of notes, you play a few notes. Mm-hmm. If he's playing a few notes, you can play a lot of notes. You go the opposite direction. Yeah. The bass is really keeping the beat going, yeah. and it's about simplicity. And mm-hmm. so my counterpoint, it's really simple to learn. Yeah. Uh, 
So and your bass is good. You're great. Well, thank you. So, you I, know, I really that means that that means a lot to me coming from you. <laughs> so um, thank you. So yeah. so what so what's so what's next? You're back here. Hmm? Um, I'm gonna have a good tongue sandwich. We you have a good tongue sandwich. You're gonna find some Charlotte and tongue. <laughs> so. Uh, um, you know, you're getting your, your master's in... Second master. Second, second. So what was your first master's in? Uh, second, it was actually history. It was similar to ethnomusicology. It was liberal studies. Uh, I studied the... Tra get ready for this. Take uh -huh. notes, everybody. <laughs> Transculturation of jazz in Japan. Okay. Uh, it's a concept of that jazz means different things to different people. And yeah. uh, I wanted to go into uh, a little bit deeper for everybody, whatever our ethnicity is or our belief... Jazz, we make it our own and put part of ourself into it. And so I wanted to know, well, what uniquely does jazz mean to the Japanese? Mm. Not, not, not how did jazz come to Japan, mm -hmm. but to them, how do they look at, at it different than we do? And, yeah. But the nuance there is everybody, how do we find our identity through jazz? And that was the uh, research. Oh, that's beautiful. And you, you wrote... It's it's you can get it online. Something it's online. it's on, on my website. On my I just website? put it up. Okay, I'm yeah. gonna have to yeah because there's so much work you've done. So I'm gonna I delete I delete stuff. I add stuff. Okay. I cycle stuff. But this this my the full paper's up there. And actually, jazz was tied into ja Japanese nationalism. It was mm. popular before the occupation. In wow. the 1920s, they loved jazz, and even during uh, the fascist era, they were using uh, jazz to uh, as a form of popular music, wow. and and again to establish Japanese identity. Similar to the way I was talking about Mickey Katz, he took uh, Yiddish music and and came up with American tunes. And he, but he was he was asserting his Jewish identity at the same time he was asking the question, "What does it mean to be an American?" Japanese people were asking, "What does it mean to be Japanese?" Of course, ja of jazz is Afro-American. The roots are in Afro-American music, and we must respect it. But what we do is then we take that source and we make it our own, all people who play it. I don't care what your race, religion, nationality is. If you're authentic, you have a personal meaning in jazz. You're not just trying to be somebody else. Hmm. So that was my, uh, at least as an artist, that's my goal, and that's my paper, kind of what I'm uh, was uh, pointing at. That's beautiful. So. I, I'm gonna. I'll link to that in, the, in the show notes. So, uh, and then now your second master's in music Sec education. Is education, actually not music education. Education, adult education in general. Okay. Uh, one, I want to have better credentials as an education. Yeah, I could get to the university. I want my. Uh, yeah. I don't know if I'll, I'll get a tenure job nowadays, <laughs> but um, a lot of people, you know, like me. But to get in the university. Most fields you need the PhD to teach. With music, the masters will. Uh, no, okay. But um, also, I wanted to focus more on ped pedagogy, mm -hmm. uh, teaching techniques, because that's I, my strength. I, I don't feel I'm the greatest player in the world, but people like my music, and I know how to teach. And that combination's rare that I can mm -hmm. play and teach. Yeah. And hopefully, there's a bit of a balance. So, I'd like to bring more legitimacy. Um, to my teaching by one, my experience, which is already there, but two, through having a legitimate education degree. And and you're and you you had mentioned you're gonna um, be revising. You're working on working on revising some of your books, or you I want to do books that. In mind? I want to do that. I want to have a full student load. This mm -hmm. is my. I was dealing with a lot of you know problems. It's so hard after twenty years, and this uh, country imagine. with the, with yeah. the health system and everything. And I have three dogs. Well, there's a culture shock. Oh, you have three dogs that you had in Japan. You brought yeah, here. Yeah, they're they're here. I couldn't have them put to sleep. I <laughs> there's yeah, there is a re there's kind of a reverse um, culture shock. Yeah, uh, everything. It's 
you know, the first year was dealing with that, per, you know, the personal crisis yeah. I had. Now I'm getting back on track. I want to start playing. Uh, p- people haven't heard my piano music, which is surprisingly uh, classical and bebop influenced. Mm. You, you haven't heard it yet, most of it. Um, my jazz playing, what most people have heard is from like 10, 15, 20 years ago. Mm. I, I practice uh, three, four, five, six, as often as I can mm-hmm. per day. So my playing is constantly changing, but people know me from stuff I've done years ago. Right. So well, I, <laughs> I'm looking for, I mean, to, to see, I'm just, you know, I hear that there's a lot emerging from you and I'm looking, but already your mark is in, you know, is out there. I mean, the fact that I found you through your book. I appreciate it. I'm embarrassed because <laughs> that's like, it's stuff that you, I think jazz, the imperative is always to get better. Yeah. And the way you do that is you kind of become a little bit ashamed. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's, that's what being an artist is about. And it pushed, that's, here's how I practice. Mm-hmm. I'll put on the tape recorder a little, my iPod, iPod, I've got them old, uh, iPhone, the iPhone. iPhone thing. Uh, <laughs> and, and then I sit down, Stella by Starlight, for example, mm. and uh, something comes to mind. I want to play like an Art Tatum style or the, whatever I feel. I listen, I play maybe mm-hmm. 20, 30, whatever, and then I go back and listen to it. And I keep listening to it till I feel disgusted. <laughs> with what I'm not doing. And jazz is in the moment. And then I also look for what I like what I'm doing. Hmm. And then the next time I practice, I try to take what I liked, but also think about, wait a minute, what did I do that I didn't like? Hmm. And But I've been doing this for, there's 365 days a year, yeah. how many 24 hours? I don't know if you're good at math, but <laughs> this has been going on for 20 years. You keep a practice journal? I don't keep a practice journal. I That's a good idea. I've been wanting to. Uh, do some more like notation to remind myself because ideas come and they go. Um, but the most important thing is, and it's not, I don't know how healthy it is, but to have that sense of shame that you can't just gloat on the accomplishments you make. Like, okay, I'm, I work, thank you, John, thank you, mm-hmm. thank you, thank you, thank you. No, this is not good enough. I have to mm. get better. Um, which do is, you, our, yeah. Do you still have John Patton in your head a little bit? Like, it, it was a huge problem. Yeah. Because. When uh, John died, my left hand was his left hand, literally. Mm. Now, do you know what it's like playing with a dead man's left hand? <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? That, do you, you mean that, that you, like, I don't, I'm his, not sure what you mean. His voice was in my head and uh-huh. everything I played was coming from what he taught me. From Remember, he, okay. he beat me in the shape, yeah. but I was John Patton. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You didn't feel like you have your own your own voice. And John is this dead man, mm-hmm. you know, and I didn't cope well with his death too. Right. But I I needed to move forward. So luckily, yeah. I stopped listening to his music mm-hmm. as much as I loved it. I just had to stop. I started listening to Wild Bill Davis uh-huh. and uh, Freddie Roach is another favorite. Mm-hmm. But now I try not to listen to other organ players. Mm-hmm. Um, but I listen to all kinds of music, and this is something that kind of upsets me. Mm-hmm. Can I go do a lecture? Yeah, yeah. Right now, um, Kiss Me Kate is playing on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, Cole Porter's score. Seminal Cole Porter's score. Right now, how many jazz musicians who live in New York actually are going to go see Kiss Me Kate? It's by one of the top, the musical director is one of the top musical directors in New York City. He's done all of Sondheim's works since the 1970s. They have a crack orchestra. That's not the greatest production ever, Mm. but it's a night of orchestrated, being played by the best of the best, 
Cole Porter tunes. How many jazz musicians are going to show up, are going to go? I, I guess only the, the ones that, that recognize. <laughs> Not many. Because yeah, jazz yeah. musicians, I don't know why, don't go to musicals. I, I've tried to get my friends who are... Huh. Um, I know there's certain imagery of musicals, but this is Cole Porter orchestration. You're hearing these tunes that you've been playing all your life in their original context. Right, well, most right, most standards are coming out of that context. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's funny, I was... Um, Unless you're, if you're, from, you're familiar with the band Fish. Fish, yeah, I went to so, Goddard for a while. By oh, you way. went? Oh, okay. So you, um, you know, I don't put it on my resume. At the same time as those guys? Or, um, I was a little bit after, but I okay. played in the barn. Okay. Well, so, so one of the things that I discovered through looking a little deeper in, because I, I kind of grew mm. up with that music when I was a teenager and um, did a little retrospective going back and checking it out and like finding what makes them tick, you know, which there's a lot to it. Um, particularly Tranastasio, his. Um, where he got his whole compositional, you know, he, had, he, had, he had Eddie Styers, who was a you know composer that that he learned with. But one of them, when I realized what one of the things that's a huge piece of the puzzle that I never realized, and I got it from a couple of interviews I saw with him, um, was that he grew up going to a lot of Broadway, which I did also. And a lot of what makes that music so dramatic and the whole visual element, let alone the the musically dramatic mm -hmm. um, element. He is owed to kind of his his experience as a kid growing up with Broadway. I, you know, that's a very important piece of that. And then he's since made a Broadway musical himself. I'm going to have to listen to it. Yeah, I, I haven't had a chance myself. It's like the couple of clips I, I checked out, it didn't it didn't grab me, but, I, but it's still, you know, I want to... Mm -hmm. um, but I, I realized that that was a big piece. Like, the, there's a... It's not just... I mean, maybe this is another topic a little bit, but... Um, I'm, you're talking musically that the roots of these standards come from the setting of these mm -hmm. musicals. So somehow there's a, mm -hmm. a visual component to mm -hmm. music that is often overlooked, which I noticed with, you know, particularly with... Um, it's not just visual. It's like there's a dramatic element, something mm -hmm. that, that pulls in a listener yeah. that's, that maybe is connected somewhat with visual, but, but maybe is more even having to do with story. Um, that maybe is overlooked when when a person is playing, let's say, an, an abstracted version of of an original piece that was part of a story and had a whole it had costumes and had you know vocals and, and lyrics. You know, I know many um, jazz uh, players play mm -hmm. standards, um, and this was again a, a shortcoming, something we were never encouraged to do in, in jazz school. But like. To know the lyrics, even if you're not singing the lyrics, but at least know the lyrics. You're that, saying even more, like to get the whole picture of, the, of these original tunes. But also, you want to come up with ideas. You don't want to just again copy these musicians. So, and you know, the organ. You're copying a whole or big band. That was big, while Bill David's concept. Your left hand is the bass. Mm -hmm. When I comp with my right hand, I'm thinking of a guitar comp sometimes. Other times, a big band horn mm -hmm. section. When I solo, maybe I'm a vibraphone. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know I sound like an organ player, but I'm hearing an orchestra. Mm. And uh, I'm not copying other organists. But when you go to these uh, Broadway musicals, the good ones, especially mm -hmm. the revivals, you get to hear orchestral music. Mm -hmm. And Charlie Parker was, you know, liked listen to popular yeah. music. And so now, okay, now you know the tunes, rebel against them. How are you rebelling against any kind of music if you're just copying somebody else? Rebel against mm -hmm. whoever you're... Rebel against Charlie Parker. Rebel against Cole Porter. 
That's mm-hmm. that's good. But 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 copying it, you can't call yourself an artist. Mm-hmm. Maybe a craftsman. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm telling you, that orchestra they have in that production is really good. Mm. So, yeah. Okay, thanks for that. Thanks for that tip. No, I I mean I I really relish mm-hmm. my experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I appreciate especially my mother's influence for for many years. Of you know, we used to go very regularly. I've seen a lot of productions over the years, and had a huge impact on me in mm-hmm. terms of my conception as a songwriter and um, musically because there is there is like this something about being in a in a good musical you know obviously is yeah that that when you kind of get swept up in it and there's there's a certain um, even in in a different way than than even like a a very like uh, effectively dramatic movie or emotional movie that that where there's this moment of like triumph or something I I, that's kind of the, the word I associate with it that that Certainly different emotions, but but that like mm-hmm. I, I picture particularly that triumphant musical moment that that the, Broadway yeah. musicals are particularly good at, you know, and the, everyone the cult, everyone is, you know yeah thrown down. But no, no, you you, ju- you just got to do it. You got to bring things to life. Um, I was trying. I was, uh, a thought just left my head, but it'll come back eventually. <laughs> yeah, we can. Yeah. yeah, but no, but oh, I was going to say, and before mm. people are yelling, probably screaming, "Oh my God, Broadway! It's so cornball." I also like Frank Zappa. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I I think you'd be surprised. I mean, at least the you know circles I I um, are connected to. Um, usually, people who are very eclectic in their tastes and are very open to. Mm. Um, but I, but I, I think what you're referring to, which I. I've also seen a lot, which mm-hmm. is kind of that academic approach, and um, maybe I, I don't have as much <laughs> to do with that world mm-hmm. now. But uh, it's yeah, I think it's an important. I think it is an important reminder that 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 there's so you know much out there, and if someone's going to embrace a, a craft, mm-hmm. um, embrace a history, that it's not even as much as um, like I, li- I like how you said that that you could be a craftsperson if someone who's copying mm-hmm. could be a good craftsperson. But there's a there's something that's going to come out as an individual that has to come out if you're engaging it in in a full way mm-hmm. that's often overlooked. Because well, here's one thing. Here's my music professor lecture. Okay. This is my audition. So they have this this thing, uh, late 19th century. It's musical nationalism, where you have all these operas and people from different countries are adapting themes from other countries, and then using it. Uh, for their operas, for example, Carmen, right? French opera, Spanish theme, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife's an opera singer. So. Okay. Uh, and you have all these different uh, settings they take place. But they were using them again to define what their own, uh, you know, their nationality, their mm-hmm. own identity. So, you know, the the composers of the Great American Songbook were mostly East European Jews. They're coming over to America. They're trying to find a new identity. They're saying, who am I? Uh, what is America? What is American music? American music didn't exactly yet fully exist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we were trying to find uh, a, a new sound, Irving Berlin. So he decided, okay, I'm going to write. Uh, he actually wrote what his concept of Afro-American music was. Um, Howard Arlen, right? Uh, um, Over the Rainbow. He was, I think, his father was a cantor. I'm not 100% sure. But all these composers were taking their identity and they're taking different themes and they're mixing them together. Suddenly, jazz comes along and people are interpreting that music. Mm-hmm. And another generation, different people are finding their identity. But I, anybody who's listening to this uh, podcast tonight, 
is, is to find what, first of all, what were these composers? What kind of identity were they seeking? What were they finding? What was, how was their imagination, you know, processing things to create this new great American music, this great British composer, whatever. Mm -hmm. Then think about yourself and what does this music mean to me? And then think about, okay, well, this is my favorite version. What does that mean to me? Synthesize it. If you play something the same way somebody else did, you haven't yet synthesized it. Mm. So, so put, people should look at that tune and they should see you in the tune, I would hope. Now, I'm not saying that all my music has reached that point. But the point is you have to see something special in the tune. And when people listen to the tune, they have to see you in it. Mm. Once, once you can do that, you are making great music. And that's why I love Broadway, because they're incorporating all these different themes. Mm. And these composers, they weren't... They, it, the, the themes are about things that are somewhat alien to them. But, you know, they're suddenly creating this new great music. And that's what we have to do. Stop just trying to say, I'm going to play jazz. Look, I'm good at jazz. That's boring. Mm. It's enough. Mm. Start... start rebelling against it, destroy jazz in order to revive it. But the end result could be incredibly swinging bebop type music, but just make sure it's coming from your 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 skin. So Kishkas. Your Kishkas. <laughs> they people people one of the terms when I did my research is odorless culture versus odorful culture. Mm. So when Japanese people make comic books, they purposely make non-Japanese looking characters sometimes, mm. certain features uh, are very like they have big rounded eyes that's mm -hmm. supposed to be westernized. So I say we need to put some odorful, when you said kishka, mm -hmm. uh, culture back. Nowadays, it's like when you go, to, I was talking about this, you go to the, what is it, the Upper West Side, you can't get like, you can get bagels, but you can't get, I was talking about my tongue sandwiches and <laughs> certain types of yeah. we need We need to put more identity. Personal it doesn't have to be cultural, mm -hmm. but we have to start getting that stink back in the music. The stink, like yeah, that. <laughs> and it kind of and it, it kind of bothers me because, you know, I used to say I love black music, but like nowadays, of course we have a right to be whoever we are, and my music is influenced by black music, but sometimes I listen to music and I just don't hear like, it's just like everybody sounds the same mm. uh, in some ways, maybe because we're using all the same drum machine. And the, <laughs> But I, I, I miss where, you, you know, you had, like for the music I listened to, you had Louis Jordan, you had Louis Prima, you know, all these different people. I want to hear, think of who you are mm. and think of who you love, if it's not who you are. But please, and, and my book, I hope I can give you the theoretical and technical knowledge, the minimal knowledge that you need to say, who am I? Okay, here's how I make the chords to say who I am. That's, that's my uh, whole message. It's beautiful. Eddie Lundsberg, it's really, really a pleasure. <laughs> and I hope this is the you know, beginning of a... You know, I, I definitely hope so, too. Connection thank you. Here and, and, uh, thank and you for allowing me to take up your... Uh, oh, it's my, it's uh, my pleasure. This is an honor <laughs> to have you here. <laughs> thank you.
So hope you enjoyed our conversation with Eddie Landsberg. We've been listening to his original composition, Get Wicked, from his 2004 record, Them That Swingeth, in addition to Eddie on Hammond Organ that features Royce Campbell on guitar and Rudy Peshauer on drums. Check out the session notes for links to Eddie's music, to his books. Now that he's back in New York, he's available for lessons as well, and he offers online lessons. Checking out his website just now, it looks like he's offering a free initial online lesson, so I highly recommend checking that out for anyone interested in furthering their music, particularly their jazz education. Once again, much appreciation to Eddie Landsberg for coming by the studio, spending time, sharing his knowledge. Every one of these sessions, I know I personally get something new out of each one, each, each guest that we have. So I hope that you all do as well. Please be in touch with me. You can reach me at soundheightsrecords at gmail.com or sign up for the mailing list at soundheightsrecords.com to stay in touch. Again, you could support us on Patreon. We really appreciate that. Soundheightsrecords.com, you can check out all that. We have some really great guests coming up in the next few sessions we're really excited about, so stay tuned by signing up for the mailing list. And as usual, remember, with abundant singing and playing of music, we bring about the true and complete redemption. See you next time.